Welcome back to another episode of Conspiracies with Chase. This is Season 5, Episode 2, The Watergate Scandal. A June 1972 break-in to the Democratic National Committee headquarters led to an investigation that revealed multiple abuses of power by the Nixon administration. The Watergate scandal began early in the morning of June 17, 1972, when, according to History.com, several burglars were arrested in the office of the Democratic National Committee located in the Watergate complex of the buildings in Washington, D.C. And in case you are wondering, this indeed was no ordinary robbery. The Prowlers were connected to President Richard Nixon's re-election campaign, and they had been caught wiretapping phones and stealing documents. Nixon took aggressive steps to cover up the crimes, but when the Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein revealed his role in the conspiracy, Nixon resigned on August 9, 1974. Before we go on, let's go back. Nixon won the presidency in 1968 in a tight contest with the Democratic nominee Hubert H. Humphrey. During that election, he ran as a moderate candidate, pledging to end the war in Vietnam with honor and make a clean break from the controversial administration of London Johnson, his predecessor. By 1972, Nixon remained popular with most Americans and was expected to defeat his opponent, Senator George McGovern. That is, until he got a little too carried away with his re-election campaign. Here's the complete timeline of events that took place, and then we'll break it down after that. Starting in the 1960s, on November 5th, 1968, when Richard Nixon was elected president. On January 20th of 1969, Nixon is inaugurated as the 37th president of the United States. July 1st, 1971, David Young and Egil Crow wrote a memo suggesting that the formation of what later became called the White House Plumbers in response to the leak of Pentagon Papers by Danielle Esbert. On August 21st of 1971, Nixon's Emmys list was started by White House aides, though Nixon himself may not have been aware of it, to, quote, use the available federal machinery to screw our political enemies. On September 3rd, 1971, White House plumbers E. Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy and others break into the office of Danielle Ellsberg's psychiatrist, Lewis Fielding, looking for the material that might discredit Ellsberg under the direction of John Ehrlichman or his staff within the White House. This was the plumbers' first major operation. By early 1972, the plumbers at this stage assigned the committee to re-elect the president, abbreviated CRP, but often mocked the acronym CREEP. I wonder why. Had become frustrated at the lack of additional assignments they were being asked to perform, and that any plans and proposals they suggested were being rejected by CRP. Liddy and Hunt took their complaints to the White House, most likely to Charles Colson and requested that the White House start putting pressure on CRP to assign them new operations. It is likely that both Colson and White House Chief of Staff H.R. Heldman did so, stating the chain of events that led to Watergate break-ins a few months later. On May 2nd of 1972, J. Edgar Hoover dies. L. Patrick Gray is appointed acting FBI director. On May 28, 1972, Liddy's team breaks into the Democratic National Committee 
headquarters at the Watergate complex for the first time, bugging the telephones of staffers. In case you're wondering, that's that's illegal. June 17th, 1972, the plumbers are arrested at 2.30 a.m. in the process of burglarizing and planting surveillance bugs in the Democratic National Committee offices at the Watergate Building Complex. On June 19, 1972, despite efforts by Steve King, Martha Mitchell acquires a copy of the Los Angeles Times and recognizes the name of one of the Watergate burglars, James W. McCord Jr., Security Director of the CRP. On June 20, 1972, reportedly based on a tip from the Associate Director of the FBI, Mark Felt, Bob Woodward reports in the Washington Post that one of the burglars had E. Howard Hunt in his address book and had possessed checks signed by Hunt and that Hunt was connected to Charles Coulson. On the same day, Nixon and Haldeman had a conversation that is recorded by the White House taping system. Eighteen and a half minutes of this conversation will later be erased. On June 23, 1972, in the Oval Office, H.R. Haldeman recommends that President Nixon that they may attempt to shut down the FBI investigation of the Watergate break-in by having the CIA Director Richard Holmes and Deputy Director Vernon A. Walters tell Acting FBI Director L. Patrick Gray to, quote, stay the hell out of this. Haldeman expects Gray will then seek and take advice from the Deputy FBI Director Mark Felt, and Felt will obey direction from the White House out of admission. Nixon agrees and gives the order. The conversation is recorded. On September 15, 1972, Hunt, Liddy, and the Watergate burglars are indicted by a federal grand jury. On November 7, 1972, Nixon re-elected, defeating George McGovern with the largest plurality of votes in American history. On January 8, 1973, five defendants plead guilty as the burglary trial begins. Liddy and James W. McCord Jr. are convicted after the trial. On January 20th, 1973, Nixon is inaugurated for his second term. February 28th, the same year, confirmation hearings begin for his confirming L. Patrick Gray as permanent director of the FBI. During those hearings, Gray reveals that he complied with an order from John Dean to provide daily updates on the Watergate investigation, and also that Dean had publicly lied to FBI investigators. On March 17th of the same year, Watergate burglar McCord writes a letter to Judge John Sirica, claiming that some of his testimony was perjured under pressure and that the burglary was not a CIA operation, but had involved other government officials, thereby leading to the investigation of the White House. On March 21st of the same year, Dean tells Nixon there is a cancer on the presidency. March 23rd, the McCord letter is made public by Judge Sirica in an open court at McCord's sentencing hearing. White House counsel John Dean begins cooperating with federal Watergate prosecutors on April 6th, and on April 27th, L. Patrick Gray resigns after it comes to light that he destroyed files from E. Howard Hunt's safe. On June 3rd, John Dean tells Watergate investigators that he has discussed the cover-up with Nixon at least 35 times. On July 18, 1973, Nixon orders White House taping systems disconnected. On July 23, Nixon refuses to turn over presidential tapes to Senate Watergate Committee or the Special Prosecutor. The Vice President replaced on October 10, 1973, 
Spiro Agnew resigns as Vice President of the United States due to corruption when he was the Governor of Maryland. On October 12, 1973, Gerald Ford is nominated as Vice President under the 25th Amendment. October 20th, the Saturday Night Massacre, Nixon orders Elliot Richardson and R to fire Special Prosecutor Cox. They both refuse to comply and resign. On November 17th, 1973, Nixon delivers I Am Not a Crook speech at a televised press conference at Disney World. On November 27th, the Senate votes 92-3 to 3 to confirm Ford as Vice President. On December 6th, the House votes 387 to 35 to confirm Ford as Vice President, and he takes the oath of office an hour later. On January 28th, Nixon campaign aide Herbert Porter pleads guilty to perjury. On February 25th of 1974, Nixon personal counsel Herbert Kalmbach pleads guilty to two charges of illegal campaign activities. On March 1st, an indictment against seven former presidential aides delivered to Judge Sirica together with sealed briefcases intended for the House Committee on the Judiciary Nixon is named Unindicted Co-Conspirator. March 18, 1974, Judge Sirica orders the grand jury's sealed report to be sent to the House Committee on the Judiciary. On April 5th, Dwight Chapin convicted of lying to a grand jury. Some other small stuff is in between this. I'm going to skip ahead to May 9th of 1974 when impeachment hearings begin before the House Judiciary Committee. And the whole argument of him releasing the tapes and papers is decided in the July 24th, 1974 case in the Supreme Court. The United States v. Nixon is decided that Nixon is ordered to give up tapes to investigators. Congress moves to impeach Nixon on July 27th to the July 30th, 1974. House Judiciary Committee passes Articles of Impeachment. Early August of 1974, a previously known tape from June 23rd, 1972, documenting Nixon and Haldeman formulating a plan to block investigations is released. This recording later became known as the smoking gun. Key Republican senators tell Nixon that enough votes exist to convict him. On August 8, 1974, Nixon delivers his resignation speech in front of a nationally televised audience. What you are about to hear is Nixon's speech as it happened. Let's play it. Good evening. This is the 37th time I have spoken to you from this office, where so many decisions have been made that shape the history of this nation. Each time I have done so to discuss with you some matter that I believe affected the national interest. In all the decisions I have made in my public life, I have always tried to do what was best for the nation. Throughout the long and difficult period of Watergate, I have felt it was my duty to persevere to make every possible effort to complete the term of office to which you elected me. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing that effort. As long as there was such a base, I felt strongly that it was necessary to see the constitutional process through to its conclusion. 
that to do otherwise would be unfaithful to the spirit of that deliberately difficult process and a dangerously destabilizing precedent for the future. But with the disappearance of that base, I now believe that the constitutional purpose has been served and there is no longer a need for the process to be prolonged. I would have preferred to carry through to the finish whatever the personal agony it would have involved. And my family unanimously urged me to do so. But the interests of the nation must always come before any personal considerations. From the discussions I have had with congressional and other leaders, I have concluded that because of the Watergate matter, I might not have the support of the Congress that I would consider necessary to back the very difficult decisions and carry out the duties of this office in the way the interests of the nation will require. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. America needs a full-time president and a full-time Congress, particularly at this time with problems we face at home and abroad, to continue to fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the President and the Congress in a period when our entire focus should be on the great issues of peace abroad and prosperity without inflation at home. Therefore, I shall resign the Presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Following Nixon's resignation and Gerald Ford's inauguration, on September 8, 1974, the new president, Gerald Ford, chose to grant Nixon a full and unconditional pardon for any crimes he may have committed while president. So... And that is going to wrap up today's episode over the Watergate scandal. Feel free to leave your thoughts and comments in the comment section or DM us on Instagram or Facebook. Join us tomorrow when we continue our Urban Myths and Legends International series with Part 4. And that is going to wrap up today's episode. Thank you for listening. I'm Chase Abden, signing out for today.